great to see a Purpose Church today. We're launching our new summer series, Dear Church, the Book of Revelation. The title of today's study is Victory. That's the basic message of the Book of Revelation, is victory. Uh, the message of this book is the glorious victory of Jesus Christ over all his enemies. Uh, in Christ, we are overcomers. Uh, that's another part of the message of the book of Revelation. Jesus Christ is the conqueror, and all believers share in his great victory. For every generation of Christians for the past 2,000 years, the book of Revelation has given us the hope that no matter how bad things seem to be, Jesus and his followers will win in the end. Billy Graham writes, the end will come with the return of Jesus Christ. Uh, that is why a Christian can be an optimist. That is why a Christian can smile in the midst of all that is happening. We know what the end will be, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've all read the final page of the Bible and God wins in the end. The book of Revelation is the final 13 pages, at least in my Bible, uh, and God wins in the end. Uh, Ernest Agyongbang Yaboa writes, if you meet the darkest moment of life, strive valiantly through it with courage and never retreat, for you shall surely meet light afterwards. Uh, so that's the hope of the book of Revelation. And the challenge of the book of Revelation is to be prepared for that day. We're to hope for that day. We're to have hope no matter how hard life gets, but we're to be challenged to be ready for that day when, when Christ returns. Um, this last nine days, Rebecca and I have been at home without Noah and Kimberly, because Kimberly uh, flew out to, she and Noah flew out to Washington, D.C. to put on what she calls Grammy camp. Our daughter, Abby, has been pushing a law uh, through Congress, and our son-in-law, Kenny, uh, has been teaching at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, and so they needed Grammy to come out. So she jumped a plane, she and took Noah with her. And uh, this has been Grammy camp that's been going on for the past week. Now, Kimberly keeps a very, very clean and tidy house. But Rebecca and me, not so much. And so we've just kinda let things go over that nine day period. But her plane, Kimberly and Noah's plane, uh, landed at LAX at noon on Saturday, at noon yesterday. And so Saturday morning, before we go uh, to pick Kimberly up, we're frantically uh, running around the house, uh, doing the dishes, cleaning up, picking up clothes. Why? Because Kimberly was on her way home. Uh, she was coming back, and Judgment Day was coming, and we needed to be prepared. Uh, here's a whiteboard that's in our uh, kitchen. And uh, every day, Kimberly writes down on here what our schedule is for the day and what our assignments for are for each day. And this is what she left before she went to Washington, D.C. Uh, the number one on the list was keep plants watered, porches and bed off of the front porch. Keep the plants watered. Now that whole thing that I just told you about doesn't work that well with plants. Uh, we, we can run around and clean up the house before she gets home. But did you, know, did you know that it doesn't do any good to water plants after they've already died? That, we, we, 
We found that out when we went to water them yesterday before we went to uh, the airport. So this, this uh, whiteboard in our kitchen, this is our book of Revelation. Uh, these were the instructions we were given in order to be prepared for when Kimberly came back, when Kimberly and Noah came back. And uh, that, that we were to be prepared for that. And some we did well in, and others not so well. And it's the same with Jesus, but we don't know what day he's gonna come back. If we knew that it was a set day, we might be tempted to kind of clean up our act right before the day of his return. Uh, but we don't know when it's gonna be. And so the book of Revelation gives us hope that he's gonna rescue us, but it also gives us a challenge to be prepared for the day when he returns. Now there are four views of the book of Revelation. Uh, number one is the historic, historicist um, approach, where Revelation surveys the whole of church history. And so this is the belief that the book of Revelation is kind of a picture of all the chapters that Christians will go through between um, when Christ first came and when he comes back the second time. For example, uh, the seven churches of Revelation in chapters two and three, somebody from this viewpoint would say that those seven churches represent seven chapters in church history before Jesus comes back. And then the second one is called the preterist approach. Fulfillment is in the past, shortly after the book was written. Now, preterist comes from the Greek word praetor, which means past. And so it's the whole idea that the book of Revelation was written primarily for the people of that time period, and they've all been fulfilled in the past uh, in the few years after the book was written. Then number three is the futurist approach, where everything after chapter three awaits fulfillment in the future. And then number four is this symbolic approach, uh, where the book of Revelation, it's not fulfilling historical events, but instead it is a picture with the symbols that are there of principles for living the Christian life for all uh, groups of Christians over the last uh, 2,000 years. And then there's number five, which is all of the above. And I want you to know that's what Pastor Eric and I are gonna be teaching from the book of Revelation, kind of all of the above. I believe that all of them are true. I believe the histor historicist approach, uh, where it does give a picture of what the church will go through over the centuries, I, I believe that's in the book of Revelation. The preterist approach, I believe that it applies to the events uh, shortly after it was written. The futurist approach, I believe it prophesies things that will happen in the last days, uh, still ahead of us before Christ returns. The symbolic approach, I believe that there are lessons to be learned for every generation of Christian for the last 2,000 years. There are biblical principles uh, that we can find. And so we're gonna be teaching uh, all of the above. Now each week of this series, we're usually gonna cover uh, two chapters of Revelation. But today we're covering three chapters, but actually just chapter one, because we did a summer series four summers ago on the seven churches of, of Revelation. And so I'm not gonna cover those chapters two and three today. We're just gonna cover uh, chapter one. So first of all, as we dig in, the title is found in verse one. The revelation 
from Jesus Christ. And by the way, it's not the book of Revelations. Uh, many times we make that mistake and call it the book of Revelations. It's singular. It's the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon uh, take place. Now, revelation um, in, in the Greek means an unveiling. And so revelation, uh, the meaning behind it is an unveiling. Um, in the English, uh, the Greek word, if you kind of uh, sound it out, is actually apocalypsis. And so from which we get our word in English, the apocalypse, which carries with it the idea of chaos and catastrophe which is actually unfortunate because that's not the meaning of apocalypse. Apocalypse uh, revelation simply means an unveiling. It's where we get a chance to pull back the curtain of heaven to get a glimpse of the exalted Christ on his throne in heaven and a glimpse of the future and what the future holds. It is an unveiling, a revelation, things of the future and most of all, things of Christ and seeing Christ as he really is today in heaven. Uh, it's primarily the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of future events, even though I believe that's part of what Revelation teaches. But primarily, it's the revelation of Jesus, of seeing him, who he truly is, in all of his power, in all of his majesty. Uh, my old professor at Wheaton College, Merrill Tenney, uh, used to say, he, Jesus, is not incidental to its action. He is its chief subject. Jesus is the chief subject of the book of Revelation. Uh, Warren Wearsby writes, in Revelation chapters one through three, Christ is seen as the exalted priest king ministering to the churches. In Revelation chapters four through five, he is seen in heaven as the glorified lamb of God reigning on the throne. In Revelation 6 through 18, Christ is the judge of all the earth. And in Revelation chapter 19, he returns to earth as the conquering king of kings. The book closes with the heavenly bridegroom ushering his bride, the church, into the glorious heavenly city. Uh, then the author is found in verse 2. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, John wrote five books in the Bible, and they are three different groupings of these books. There's one uh, gospel of John, there are three letters or epistles of John, and then there's the book of Revelation. The gospel of John was written so that we might believe in Jesus. The letters of John, were written so that we would be sure, uh, be assured of our relationship with Jesus. The book of Revelation is so that we would be ready for the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the gospel talks about life received. The letters of John talk about life revealed. And Revelation talks about life rewarded. The gospel of John is about salvation. Letters of John are about sanctification or becoming more and more like Jesus. The book of Revelation is about the sovereignty the rule of Christ over the universe. And then the Gospel of John uh, sees Jesus as the prophet. The letters of John see him as the priest, and the book of Revelation sees Jesus as the king. Now the word here that's used by John is that he's testifying. And testifies is courtroom language, which the early Christians, unfortunately, would know a great deal about. 
Uh, Roman law always permitted the accused uh, to speak in their defense. And Christians could use their hearings as an opportunity to proclaim Christ regardless of the consequences. Now, John wrote Revelation about uh, 95 AD during the reign of Titus Flavius Domitian. And the emperor demanded that he be worshiped as Lord and God. And because John refused to do that, church tradition says that Domitian exiled him to the Isle of Patmos, which was, uh, here it is right here on the map, Patmos, which was a Roman prison colony off the coast of Asia Minor. Uh, this is Asia Minor, which is the nation of Turkey today. Um, there are several pictures that we have here uh, from uh, Patmos that have been shown uh, down throughout uh, history. And you can see these pictures as we uh, scroll uh, through them. This is what Patmos uh, looks like today. And Teresa Chater from our church uh, sent me these pictures of the, it's called the Monastery of St. John that was built over the cave where he may have written the book of Revelation. And you'll see here the plaque that says the holy cave of the apocalypse. And it quotes from Revelation. Um, I was on the island of Patmos when Jesus uh, appeared to him and gave him this revelation. Now, one of the reasons why John may have used so much symbolism uh, in the book of Revelation is because this kind of a spiritual code would have only been understood by followers of Christ. So if Roman officials tried to use uh, Revelation as evidence against Christians in court, the book would have been a puzzle to them. They would have looked at the book of Revelation and said, what's this all about? I mean, let's admit it, we sometimes think that as well. Well, can you imagine non-Christian Roman authorities? They would have just thought it was a bunch of you know, crazy stories and crazy symbolism. Because some of the symbols are explained, some are not explained, and we have to kind of, it's a mystery, and we may not fully understand until we get to heaven. But some of the symbols are explained, and others only make sense if you know the Old Testament. If you know the Old Testament, there are almost 300 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So somebody that would know the book of Revelation would know much of what uh, John is talking about in the Revelation. And then there's uh, the readers, uh, verse three. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. A revelation is a hard book to preach, and it's a hard book to read. It's a hard book to preach. Pastor Eric and I have been texting each other uh, today as I got uh, prepared to share uh, part one, and then later on in the series, he'll be sharing some. And he was just saying, my goodness, this is hard sledding. And I said, absolutely. It's a hard book to preach, and it's a hard book to read, and it's a hard book to listen to. But it's the only book in the Bible whose author promises a blessing to those who read it. It may be hard work this summer to go through the book of Revelation, but there is a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads it aloud uh, before the church, who preaches it aloud before the church. Blessed is that church, and blessed are those who hear it. And I believe that we're gonna be blessed this summer as we read through the book of Revelation together 
as a church. Now it says, because the time is near. Because the time is near. How many of you hope that the time is, is near? My hand is up. I got both hands up. I bet you your hand, wherever you're sitting there, your living room or at your computer, I bet, but your hand is up as well. But it's a little bit of a trick question, right? It's a little bit of a trick question because what if the people that were reading it around 95 AD, what if he had come that year? We would have missed out on heaven. We wouldn't have been born and have the chance to, to follow Christ. And so even though we, we want him to come soon, remember every year that he delays is a chance for more people to receive Christ and to join us in heaven. Matt Smeathurst writes, God did not give us the book of Revelation so that we'd build bigger bomb shelters in the backyard. He gave us this book so we build bigger dinner tables and invite our friends over and tell them about Jesus. Uh, verse four, uh, I, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before uh, his, his throne. Uh, Paul sent seven letters to seven churches, Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Thessalonica. Now John sends one letter to seven churches. Paul, seven churches, seven letters to seven different churches. Now John sends one letter that would have been passed uh, from church to church. And so you'll see that the order that it's given here in the book of Revelation, this is strategically, these cities were placed in order to reach what is today the nation of Turkey, but back then was called Asia Minor. And the average distance between each of these cities was 30 to 45 miles. And so you see the order in the book of Revelation. It went from Patmos, first of all, to Ephesus, then to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, then to Thyatira, then to Sardis, then to Philadelphia, and then to Laodicea. And so the messenger would carry the same copy of it, and maybe they'd make copies in each city as they went around. But it would be read, most of the people couldn't read back then, and so somebody would read it to the church. And so that's why he said, blessed are those that read it, and blessed are those that hear it. Now these churches were under tremendous pressure uh, to compromise with the culture around them. Uh, just like we're facing today, tremendous um, pressure uh, to compromise, uh, to give in to the surrounding culture. And they were also challenged to keep sharing Jesus in spite of that pressure. In the same way we're challenged to do the same thing, they were challenged to keep sharing Jesus in spite of the pressure that they were under. And a hundred years later, uh, there were Christians everywhere uh, through this part of, of the world. Uh, Tertullian, who's one of the early leaders of the African church, an African church leader, a very powerful defender of the faith at that time, uh, he used to mock those who said that Christians should be fed to the lion. That was a common phrase back there. Let's take all the Christians and feed them to the lion. And Tertullian said, there are so many of us. We are everywhere. There are just thousands of, hundreds of thousands of us now, Tertullian mocked them and said, what 
all of them to one lion? <laughs> there, there are too many of us for one lion uh, to eat uh, all of us. And they continue to grow to the point that after, a hundred years after Tert Tertullian, uh, the Roman Empire, uh, they took it over a hundred years after that. So a hundred years after the book of Revelation, Tertullian said, there's, there's so many of us, you gotta get yourself a bunch of lions to eat them all. And a hundred years after Tertullian, they took over the Roman Empire. You know, we see that going on in the world today. When communism took over China, there were about two million Christians in China. And today, we believe there could be almost 100 million followers of Jesus in the nation of China. In 1960, there were only 25 baptized Christians in the nation of Nepal. And over the next 25 years, the church in Nepal multiplied a thousand times. Multiplied a thousand times from that little group of 25. And so God is still doing today what he did back then. Today, the church is growing fastest in the nations of Iran and Afghanistan. The two nations in the world today where Christianity is growing the fastest are Iran and Afghanistan. And now comes the dedication in verse five. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He paid the price so that we could be redeemed. He paid the price so that we could be freed from our sins by the shedding of his blood. Jacqueline Carey writes, for every victory, there's a price. There's a price for every victory. And Jesus paid the price so that we could be victorious along with him. Uh, the English poet from the 1600s, uh, Francis uh, Quarles writes, no cross, no crown. It's because of the cross of Jesus that we have the victory of Jesus and Jesus was given the crown. No cross, no crown. Verse six, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever, amen. And then the theme is found in verse seven. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, even those who crucified him are gonna, are gonna see him someday. Uh, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He says, I'm the Alpha, which is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and the Omega, which is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. You know, the Greeks... Uh, sometimes use symbolic letters to describe their deities. They would take one letter of the alphabet to describe their gods. And you know, in the old Greek stories from Greek mythology, the deities were just pathetic. I mean, they were very powerless and, and weak sometimes and fickle uh, and unjust. Uh, they could be captured and, by mortals 
in the, in the Greek stories. They could be interrogated, captured and interrogated by mortals. Uh, they proved unable to protect a mortal uh, relative. And I've got to admit, the gods in the movies today aren't all that much better. I mean, look at gods in DC Comics and, and Marvel, like Thor and Loki and Aquaman. Now, I know some of you fanboys out there are going to say, Glenn, uh, he's not a true god because he's not related to Poseidon. But details aside, uh, these three uh, gods of our age, uh, now you notice I didn't put Wonder Woman up there because I really like Wonder Woman a lot. I mean, she was a member of the Israeli army, a part of the Israeli military. How cool is that? So I didn't put uh, Wonder Woman up there. I put um, Aquaman, who's uh, debatable as to whether he's a god or not. Now, I love these guys in the movies, but man, they have a lot of weaknesses, just like the Greek gods uh, from a couple thousand years ago. Now, praise God. We don't follow a Greek God or a Roman God or a Marvel God or a DC Comics God. But John says here uh, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the first and the last and everything in between. Now imagine how encouraging it was for Christians a suffering under the Roman Empire, knowing that they served the Alpha to the Omega. They served the Almighty. Caesar might rule the citizens of an empire in limited ways, but God rules the cosmos. He rules the universe. And God, who is the beginning and the end, will guide the course of history long after Caesar's death and the cremation of his body. And today, we name our sons John, and we name our dogs Nero. We name our sons John, exiled by the emperor to the Isle of Patmos. We name our sons Paul, uh, beheaded by the emperor Nero. We name our sons John and Paul, and we name our dogs Nero. And I want you to know, just in case you're worried, my assistant, Tina Tong, uh, checked all 7,000 people on our database at uh, Purpose Church, and none of them are named Nero. <laughs> so don't worry, I didn't hurt anybody's feelings by using that illustration. A couple of my favorite quotes. First of all, by Francis Chan, our greatest fear should not be a failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And here's another one I just love by Peter Marshall. He says, it is better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. Isn't that fabulous? Don't be discouraged in, in, in what you're feeling right now, what you're going through, even if it involves failure. Because it is better to fail in a cause that someday, the book of Revelation tells us, is going to succeed than to succeed in a cause that's ultimately going to fail. And now we come to the occasion. Uh, first of all, what John heard. Uh, verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, 
was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, that is Sunday, uh, the day of Jesus' resurrection, when Christians would worship back then, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then what John saw, verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. You know, when I think of rushing waters, I think of Niagara Falls. And so he says here, John says here, that this voice was like being surrounded by the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Um, uh, this is very important because astrology was like everywhere in the Roman Empire. And people felt that fate controlled their future and it was guided and revealed through the stars. Even most Jewish people believe that God revealed the Gentiles' future through the stars. But here he says, in his right hand, he held the seven stars. And so the followers of Jesus have nothing to fear in the future because Jesus is the one who holds the stars in his hands. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. Oh my goodness, we need to remember that vision of Jesus. Whatever you're going through, follower of Jesus, whatever you're going through, Purpose Church, that Jesus is the one that's in control. You know, and how we view Jesus and how we see Jesus, we need a little less of this and a little more of this. Or maybe a little bit more of this, or maybe <laughs> we need a little bit more of this, all right? And maybe a little bit more of this. <laughs> Look at that ripped Jesus, you know? But maybe that's what we need to remember. That, that's the image that Revelation gives us. That, that's the encouragement we need. Um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Aslan is the uh, lion in Narnia, and uh, he is a, a symbol, a picture of Jesus. And in this book, there's this one section where they say, you'll understand when you see him, when you see the lion, when you see Aslan. But shall we see him, asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve? That's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, asked Mr. Beaver sternly. 
Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you shall, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just else silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. The lion of Judah is not a safe lion, but he is a good lion. And then what John did in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Yes, the Roman emperor may kill you. Uh, He may have temporarily the keys of death. The Roman emperor may decide who dies, but we follow the one who controls who lives and who dies and who lives again. And then the outline for the book of Revelation is in verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen. That's the chapter we're in, chapter one. What is now, that's chapters two and three, and what will take place later, that's chapters four through 22. So let's review. Uh, Number one, the book of Revelation is a Christ centered book, and that's the most important one of all. It is a Christ-centered book. Number two, it is an open book. In Revelation 22, verse 10, John is told, don't seal it up. It may be difficult to understand, but it is not impossible to understand. Number three, it is a book filled with symbols. Number four, it is a book of prophecy. Number five, it is a book with a blessing. Number six, it is a relevant book. Number seven, it is a majestic book. Uh, Revelation is a book about the throne of God. Did you know that the word throne is used 46 times in the book of Revelation? It is a majestic book. It is a universal book, number eight. It is for everyone. And number nine, it is a climactic book. It is the grand finale of the Bible and the beginning of eternity with Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And all God's family said, amen and 